life can be tricky, making us ask, what was that? Join host Jan Murray and her guests as they explore the that's of life. Welcome to Life After That. Hello everyone, I'm Jan Murray, the host of Life After That, and today we are welcoming Celia Kane from Canada, and she's going to share a little bit about her life with her husband David, who passed away from ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. So hi Celia, and I want to welcome you to Life After That, and I'm so glad you could join us today to talk about your husband David, who passed away just in 2022, last year. Uh, at the age of 52 from ALS. Thank you so much for having me. Could you uh, share with us a little bit about David and his life before ALS entered and kind of lead us to, you know, letting us know about him and then lead us into what happened to cause him to seek a diagnosis and what happened from that point? Well, certainly. So David uh, was originally from Tbilisi in the Republic of Georgia, which is a very small country in between Turkey and uh, and Russia and in the Caucasus mountain range. And he was a democracy advocate uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union at a time when that was very dangerous and left, fled, essentially, uh, his home in uh late 1999 and in 2000 was allowed to come into Canada. He had been briefly in the United States and he was allowed to come into Canada uh, where he entered as a political refugee. So he came to this country with, uh, I mean, his suitcase was smaller than a purse that I carry, you know, this teeny, teeny, tiny suitcase. And, uh, he became a cheesemonger very quickly. He got a, a job selling cheese and uh, became the manager of that store. And then as we were uh, getting married, as we got engaged and married, he uh, became a financial advisor and he sold insurance and he did all of these other things. And then uh, as the financial crisis approached in 2008. So it was around 2007. He told me he was uncomfortable selling financial products. He just didn't feel it was real anymore. Uh, and he decided he wanted to sell cars. So as he did with everything else, he uh, started at the bottom, you know, he started with used cars. And in just a few short years, he was one of the top Audi salesmen in Canada. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so he stayed super busy uh, and we had three boys and got this home in the suburbs and we gardened together and, and did all of these things. And then uh, in the fall of uh, 2019, he started having a little bit of trouble putting license plates onto cars which was part of his job. He had a little trouble using the screwdriver, but we didn't mm -hmm. think much of it. But then during lockdown, we were renovating the garden and he started dropping power tools. Uh, he couldn't hold the power tools. And the difference from the beginning of lockdown to the end of lockdown was really pretty profound. Hmm. 
Um, and a couple of weeks before that, even he had fallen down the stairs, which, you know, he was quite a great graceful guy, you know, he wasn't the least bit clumsy. So that was also very confusing for us. Uh, so eventually I convinced him he had to talk to our doctor uh, in April. So uh, we start seeing symptoms really in February and in March and in April, he talked to the doctor. Uh, in May, he went to the neurologist and he was uh, diagnosed in uh, July. And that was 2021? Uh, no, that was 2020. 2020. Okay. So it happened really quickly then. His diagnosis? Yeah. 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 We're really fortunate in this part of Canada. We have really excellent health care and the doctor uh, made sure that we saw, I'm, I'm sure looking back on it, that she suspected it was more than carpal tunnel, which is what we thought it was. We thought the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so we went to this guy and when he gave David the diagnosis, I wasn't even with him, you know, because all of these tests had come back clear. Right. And of course they test for everything else that they can right. fix. Well, as we know, they it's, a, it's a, you can't really test for ALS. No, you, 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 you eliminate everything else. Yeah. So, so all of these things had been negative and I was like, oh, okay, we're good then, you know, and, and he certainly didn't feel he needed me there. And then the doctor told him, and when he told me, I was like, well, who is this dude? And why does he think, you know, this neurologist, and why does he think he knows so much? You know, he's just some guy in a suburban hospital. And it ended up that he was semi-retired from running the ALS clinic. Oh, <laughs> so but then you he, think, but is he just seeing this because he's seen so much, he's he used it to, everywhere? Yeah, well, yeah. he he's the person that trains the medical students in, uh, or the neurology residents in this part of Canada, how to do the that muscle electricity the test. Muscle thing. EMG, yeah. Yes, yeah. So he knew what he was talking about, and uh, we got our second opinion at the Toronto uh, clinic, and uh, in in August of 2020. Okay. So before all of that, I mean, you told me about his where he came from and what he's done, but was he? Because I hear this all the time that. Uh, that those stricken by ALS were athletic people or they ran or they played sports. So they were just super healthy and rarely had any health concerns in their lives. Was your husband like that? Someone who was just super healthy with, with he little... was super healthy. He was not an athlete, but he was super healthy. And uh, matter of fact, I insisted that he get uh, some extra life insurance to cover him through the age that our kids were going to be at university. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously I'm glad I did that, but he got the extra special rate, you know, the lowest possible rate that he could get because his test results were so phenomenally good mm -hmm. back then. So, which was just like, I think two years before, I mean, it really wasn't that long before. Yeah. My husband was, uh, he was, he had been an athlete as a teenager, but he was just super healthy. And until ALS hit, I probably could count on five fingers, how many times he ever sought medical attention in yeah. 30 years. Um, yes, exactly. And he started dropping tools, which he didn't tell me. He had been struggling for like a year, apparently, before things got bad enough that he was like, hey, something's going on. And uh, we, they were going to treat him for carpal tunnel. And then they decided it was his neck. So he had the discectomy. Mm -hmm. And he already had two brothers with ALS. 
and and they didn't immediately go to that they didn't the the local neurologist was convinced it wasn't als he did an emg but he didn't do any muscle engagement during that which i had done enough reading at that point that i knew that was probably not right i wound up calling vanderbilt university in nashville tennessee and got in contact with the als clinic neurologist there that had treated or was treating one of my husband's brothers and he agreed to evaluate my my bill. And so, I mean, we got up there almost immediately. <clears throat> they redid the EMG. And when they got done, they're like, this is ALS. And with your family history and with what we're seeing and what they did lots of tests that day, they were sure that's what it was. <clears throat> so they said the discectomy probably didn't hurt anything, but he didn't need it. And he certainly didn't need to have oh. carpal tunnel surgery. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Um, and his sister, one of his two sisters has also passed away since he died. She died a few months ago, actually. There were six children in that family and four of them have been taken out by ALS at this point. Oh, my goodness. Uh, but they don't know what mutation it is. We've uh, had genetic testing. And apparently it's not any of the mutations they've identified to this point. So nobody really knows um, what's taken out my husband's family. And so that's kind of scary and depressing all at one time. <laughs> so. I, I w actually wonder if the speed of my husband's progression, you know, which was really just over two years from the onset of symptoms and right at two years from diagnosis, uh, if that made it easier to diagnose because the first time he went to that first neurologist, the nurse taking him in said, oh, you don't have this muscle between the thumb and the first yeah. finger. Yeah. And that, of course, if you start with your hands in ALS, that is the clearest sign. They look and, a certain way, don't they? Yeah. 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 And uh, the doctor basically shushed her, you know, and she didn't say anything beyond that. So I think that they expected it from the beginning and they look for it from the beginning because of that one because of the hand mm -hmm. yeah it took his hand a while to get that particular hollow look like his two brothers had yeah um and my bill was limb onset but it did start let's see it started in his left hand his right hand he could still use some at the end um and then I know several other people who got the bulbar onset where it's affecting the breathing and the speaking, but my husband lost his voice within two years, even though he was limb onset. Did your, did your husband lose his voice or did. what, did, yes. what were the things that went away first? I guess I'll ask. Uh, well, first right hand and then left hand, and then the arms uh, progressed up and uh, then his legs started getting a lot weaker. Um, and as his uh, core muscles started going, uh, his throat was going and voice was going at the at the same time as that. So for for quite a while, it seemed like quite a while. Time is funny when you're uh, cows. Yeah. Uh, but for quite a while, it sounded like he had a little bit of a cold, mm -hmm. you know, and then the frog in his throat and then just completely gone. And that created some unique challenges for us because, you know, he needed to talk to his family back in Georgia and he couldn't talk anymore. Uh, and we got an eye gaze, you right. know, with a, with actual Georgian uh, letters uh, 
they made an alternate keyboard for him so he could do it. But by the time all of that was in place, his eyes were starting to not focus as well. And it was quite hard for him to use it. So one of the ways that I know he never, ever, ever lost any of his brain power was he would have me type out messages in Georgian, which I don't speak at all and don't read at all, you know, have no, absolutely no knowledge of the language. You know, he would have me type out the messages uh, and send them to his family. So that means that he would tell me the letter in English, the best he could do, which sometimes involved me, you know, guessing and until we got it and and know in his head what letter that was on the Georgian keyboard. Hmm. And then be so he was trans because it's a completely different alphabet, you know. So he was transliterating, not just translating, uh, to get short little messages to his family in those last couple of months. That sounds so so difficult. It was it was really challenging, and especially because of the sort of messages we were sending. You know, like one of the last ones was, uh, "I've decided on cre- cremation. Don't give Celia a hard time." <laughs> <You know? laughs> we did cremation. You know, that way, yeah, that way I could take him back to Georgia without it being a huge big deal. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and we and we did that, but it's not normally done for Orthodox Christians, so you know it yeah it's a a fairly new concept down here yes i don't think anybody else in my husband's family had been cremated either Um, my stepfather had but on my husband's side but i think we were the first Mm -hmm. not sure how it went over but i do know that the sister that just passed away was also cremated and one of the other two brothers so i would say it's much more accepted now much more common than it used to be yeah and well for us um it was financial there was no way i could afford to do the whole casket burial thing we already had a plot at a cemetery because our four our four biological children we have two grown adopted children our four biological children that passed away. I had a set of triplets and another child and none of the four survived very long after birth. And so there's a cemetery plot where my children are buried and there was already, there's already space there for us, but um, I had his military stone put there, but his ashes have been spread in various places that he wanted them. And so yeah, it worked out for us. So, <laughs> but so tell me, okay, his went really, your husband's went really fast. I'm not used to hearing about limb onset ALS moving that quickly, Yeah, uh, except in women. But for men, normally that limb onset will like go a little bit longer. And it's usually the bulbar that will go super fast. So your husband's went really, really fast. I mean... Every time I questioned a doctor about this, they'd be like, well, if it was going, if, if he had the, I would say, does he have the fast type? And they say, well, if he had the fast type, he'd be dead, you know, or near death. You know, that only lasts a few months. Uh, and here it's been, you know, eight months or nine months or whatever it was at that point. Uh, but he clearly had, you know, the fast limb onset. And there were a lot of things about his case that were quite unusual. You know, it's almost 
uh, nobody has heard of this disease in Georgia. It's just really astoundingly uncommon. Nobody had heard of it. Everybody wow. had to find out about it. Uh, and when I went uh, after after he died with with our boys, you know, there were lots of questions. What is this disease? You know, what does it mean? How does this happen? Is this something our family is going to inherit and all of that? And one of the crazy things is uh, every time David was asked, every time we got a new doctor, and you know, there are always a lot of doctors that you deal with. So right. every time we got a new doctor, they would ask about his history of concussions. Mm -hmm. And he would say, I've never had a concussion. Right. And I was relaying that and explaining some of the ways that ALS can occur uh, to his closest friend. And his friend was like, I can think of several concussions and I was there for three of them, you know, and, and went through those stories. And basically because he never went to a hospital and was diagnosed with a concussion, uh -huh. you know, it's just not something he put in his memory as I have had concussions and I should talk about that. So we expect, we suspect that it was, um, a combination of concussion and uh, a, a viral illness that he had when he was a young teenager that mm -hmm. sent him to hospital for about a year. Uh, you know, that something in the interplay of those things created this problem. Yeah, my husband no. had quite a few, I think, concussions as a football player as a when he was young. Yeah. Um, but the other thing that we think plays a part are chemicals, environmental issues. He was raised in a town of, surrounded by farms next to a huge army military base. He served in the Air Force Reserves for 20 years, took many vaccinations that he didn't even know what some of them were, um, worked on that military base uh, for years. So we've always thought that it was something to do with all of it. The, the concussions, the chemicals, ex chemical exposure to fertilizers on football fields and baseball fields, and maybe even in our water table, who knows from farmland mm -hmm. at the military base where he served when he did, went to different places, even overseas. We just think, I don't know that we'll ever know in our lifetime, but we think there's an interplay, like you said, word, I love that word with all those things that kick this in. And obviously in his family, we assume that there's a genetic factor with four of six children, yet they can't identify a gene mutation for them. In fact, the last thing I heard was that the testing on the sister that recently passed away didn't look anything like the testing that was done on my husband and at least one of the other two brothers, which is so weird that is very strange so yeah. i just think there's still so much that we don't know and like i don't think we're ever gonna know but yet the those who get the als the symptoms and the progression are identical in many ways and different in others but yet we can't find a common denominator between the causes and it's just very frustrating really yeah and it's also frustrating because i i went back you know as a former professor i knew how to read 
and let me be clear, a former music professor, so <laughs> definitely not in medicine. But, but you're I a knew, researcher. You're just like I'm me. But I'm a you're researcher, researcher. Yep. and I, I knew how to read academic articles. Right. So I would go back, and, and the, the progression seems to be every decade or so, they find something, and they think this is going to be it. Yep. And then you follow the studies on it, and then they're like, oh, well, actually, no, that wasn't it. You know, and then they try it again. Uh, and it's, it's great that they're still trying, but yeah. it is super frustrating and frightening even that they have no idea no idea still no idea and then they come out with a new drug every so many years that'll give you an extra three to six months possibly but it doesn't do anything for the real progression of the disease or for the symptoms and the losses because i always say you know we agreed for seven years because my husband lasted seven years Uh, from the time he was diagnosed, but we now, we know that he was suffering from losses for a full year before that, because he just didn't tell me. Um, I had wondered why he was asking me to tie his work boots (laughs) every day and why I was supposed to open his packs of crackers in his lunchbox before he would leave. And I was like, why are you doing these things yourself? And he never told me, but now, you know, I figured out later, oh, gosh so he's been having these problems for a long long time but in any case it's scary my children are my living children are adopted and they will tell anybody that they're so thankful that they're adopted because they were like if if we were biological mom I don't think we would ever have children and my my son who's he'll be 30 this year he's never married he's not really interested in marriage or having children. My daughter's 27 is married and has just had her second child, but they are both like, we just wouldn't have children. We'd be terrified um, to pass this on for whatever reason that it's attacking the Murray family. And I get that. I totally get that. And I wonder sometimes if that's had something to do with why three sons and a daughter passed away on us. You know, it's all these things go playing in your mind. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's impossible to know these things. I know that I do not. I don't allow my children to play hockey. You know, and we're in Canada. That's a big deal. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I just I don't do hockey. I don't do football. I don't do uh, soccer. Even you know anything that leads to concussions you know, big or small, you know, the little regular concussions seem to be a big problem with this uh, illness. And since, you know, he tested negative for the genetic types, but as we know, they clearly don't know what all the genetic types are. They don't. Yeah. There were only, I think there were five identified mutations when my husband was first diagnosed. And SOD1, I think was the one everybody called the familial one. Yeah. Well, he tested negative for that. So did the two brothers. So we knew it wasn't that. Then eventually they came out with a, I can't remember the mutation number now. Is it CD something? But it's supposedly the most prominent familial mutation. Well, not in this family. (laughs) (laughs) So they tested a few other obscure ones that might have, but it was none of those. So it literally is a mystery for us. And, um, I, I just, like I said, in our lifetime, I don't believe we're ever going to know. There's, yeah. I mean, they don't, 
They don't, they don't have enough the answers that they do know. So how, and it's world... really hard for them to get data because it's a yeah. rare illness. It's a rare illness, but you know, I don't know that it's as rare as maybe we say. And I say that because of the number of people that I know that either have it or had it. I can't get over how many, there's clusters of it. I don't know if you see yeah. that in Canada, but there are like small towns with clusters of people with ALS. A uh, town of 2000 had like four people at one time. That's crazy. That is um, crazy. A small city near here. Uh, two anesthesiologists from the same hospital had ALS and then one of their na- one of one of them's neighbors, all in this one little area. And again, we have small cities here, but we're also surrounded by military and uh, lots of sports fields with fertilizers, lots and lots of farmland. So I just why I think it all has something to do with it. I really feel strongly that it does, but I don't think we're, we're going to know what it is. So tell me what was the hardest thing, what was the hardest loss during, during his battle, during um, David's battle, what, it was all hard, I know, but what part of him or what ability did it, was the hardest for you guys? (sighs) It's a hard one. Yeah, it's a hard, it's a hard question. There's so, so many possibilities on that. Um, probably the hardest for me, although it was entirely expected and I thought I was ready for it, but probably the hardest was his voice. I can't remember Bill's voice. Uh, I found a recording a few months ago on an old little eight millimeter videotape that I came across in a box and I went to the Goodwill secondhand store and actually found a camera a video camera for five dollars i ordered a replacement battery off of amazon it came and the camera turned on and i was able to put that tiny tape in there Mm. and his voice was on it but i wasn't even sure it was him until i looked at the video screen and i realized that really was his voice but i at this point i haven't heard I had not, I haven't heard his actual voice in 13 years. Yeah. I remember it. We'd been married over 30 years, but I I remember the slurring that started happening more than I remember his actual voice. So yeah, I get that. The voice is hard. Plus the communication. My husband's eyes were also affected. And even though the Steve Gleason Foundation provided a fabulous Toby eye gaze system for us. Yeah. We were never able to put it to use because his eyes were so weak. It was just a mess. Uh, He never got to use it. So we had a little ABC chart that with his right hand that still worked, he would point letter for letter and spell. And he was not a great speller. (laughs) I always knew what he was trying to say. So if somebody else said, and I had to, I could figure it out. But communication was so hard. And near David's end, you know, he would try so hard to communicate and I would, you know, try and complete what he was saying. And are you saying this? Are you saying that? Are you saying this other thing? And I kept trying to make it, you know, deep and meaningful. And it was usually things like turn off the lights outside and call in the dog and stuff like that. That was, you know, that was my husband. You know, he was a man and that's how men. (laughs) That's how men talk. (laughs) That is how they talk. And that's what they think about. And 
it would be something simple like that. And I'd be like, oh, you know, <laughs> but uh, it could be something as simple as scratch right there or something. Yes, yeah, he couldn't yeah. scratch and uh, couldn't do anything. I mean, they really couldn't. He couldn't maneuver his hands. He couldn't turn or any of that. And I'm guessing your David couldn't either. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I missed hugs too. Cause I mean, he couldn't like hug me anymore and I miss his hugs. Yeah. When we, when we had to move David to a uh, hospital bed, that was, that was really hard. And, you know, we shifted one of my kids uh, twin beds downstairs so I could be right next to him in it. But, uh, but man, that was, that was very, very difficult. And he was really resistant to it. He didn't yeah. want to be in a hospital bed. You know, we had been making do with various pillows and stuff, but we just got to a point where I needed the lift assist and stuff mm -hmm. of a, of a hospital bed. And I told him that and insisted on it, but that was, that was really hard to yeah. give up that uh, time next to him, even though I was as close to him as I could possibly get. Yeah, but it's not the same because yeah. I, I think probably nearly every night of our married life, we went to sleep holding hands and eventually that ended. And next thing I knew, he had a bad fall, which ultimately landed him in the hospital for a couple of weeks. And by the time he got out, his legs had stopped working. And so he had to go into the hospital bed, which wound up being in the living room. And then there I was in the big king size bed. My daughter, who was, I don't know, 13, maybe at the time, she came and slept with me some. It was weird, but it got where his voice was so bad, I had to start sleeping on the couch in order yeah. to be able to hear him. Then we got smart and put little wireless doorbells next to him so he could, you know, you come up with all kinds of crazy ways. Yes. But, yeah. you know, they're not always perfect, but yeah. How, you know, um, the very, go ahead. I, the very best thing that we did. So we put on this wheelchair accessible edition. I have a modest split level house and we wanted to stay. David really, really wanted to stay here because we've built this beautiful garden and the kids are in schools that they like. And, you know, if we moved, I mean, we'd have to move to Labrador or something in order to afford a place. So instead we put on an addition and the uh, there are all sorts of things that I tried to source and get to make things easier. Uh, but the one thing that really made life easier was the Japanese toilet. Oh, I uh, don't even know what that is. You'll have to tell me. Well, it's, it's automatic. And, you know, as you, when he could still walk, you know, as you walk up to it, we could have it set where the seat and uh, where the, the cover and the seat would come up because he couldn't lift it. Wow. But it would come up on his own. And then we had an auto flush, so it would flush on his own. You know, and it had a it had a built-in, it's called a washlet, so a built-in bidet. Okay. So we were able to use that until the week before he died. Wow, I can't even and imagine. He was able he was able to sit without me holding him until the week before he died, and it had a remote control. So I could be in the next room and I, I know this is, you know, very personal information to it's give, fine. That's what but this is I, about. Could, I could press a button and clean him and dry him before I even returned to help him up. That's amazing. I've never heard. This is the first time I've ever heard of that. 
Yeah. That's uh, pretty amazing. I wish we had had something like that. It was, yeah. I mean, the dignity that that brought was yeah. just amazing. You know, the toileting the, was the, one of the first things to really destroy his dignity or what he felt like it did. Yes. That yeah. and having to have shower assist from someone other than me. And it was really hard. Yeah, that is very hard. But wow. And you use it that close to when he was passing. Oh, wow. So what happened that eventually led to his passing? Was it a breathing thing or did he have an infection? My husband had an infection that wound up turning septic is what actually took him out. Mm. Um, yeah, it was, it was breathing. Breathing. Yeah, he just had more and more trouble. My husband never got, he had the BiPAP machine, you know, the external thing. Um, but he had, he had decided, we had decided together he wouldn't be traked. Um, he did get a feeding tube about halfway through the seven years because he was choking so, so bad that I would have lost him three years before I did had he not gotten a feeding tube. Um, we said we in the beginning, we said no feeding tube, no trach, no nothing. But by the time he, he was not ready to go, he still was so engaged with life that, you know, the best he could be that it was either feeding tube or you're going to pass away within a couple of weeks. And so we went ahead and did the feeding tube and it was actually a blessing for us. It was hard because he loved to eat and enjoyed mm -hmm. food. And um, I tell you, I bought lollipops in every possible flavor. There are <laughs> there are bacon flavored lollipops in the world. There are popcorn, bacon, uh, almost anything you can think of. You can find a lollipop in that flavor. I mm. ordered expensive gourmet things just so he could still enjoy the taste yeah. of the some of the foods he liked. And there was a book that was called the chew and spit cookbook or something like that we tried that but unfortunately he would still choke so putting food in his mouth was a no-no but a lollipop of different flavors he could handle and uh i took him i loaded i borrowed the van we had a handicapped van that was passed down to us from another family when their person passed away and i had passed it to another family before bill passed away because they needed it more than we did and i could borrow it if i needed it and I borrowed that van back and took him two hours south to the Gulf of Mexico for an, an outing a couple of times. But one of those times he was already being tube fed and my daughter and I took him and he was hungry. So we were on this beautiful long pier that stretched out over the Gulf. It was gorgeous. You know, people are all around. And the way we handled, we laughed at everything. We made everything funny. We tried to stay positive about everything. So we're out there, we're surrounded by people on that long, long pier. And um, we're like, well, what are we having for dinner today? We're having, you know, lobster and, you know, <laughs> naming all these amazing foods. And people were just literally staring because we're making a big deal. We're having lobster bisque and we're having this and we're having that. And my bill was a jokester and he loved to laugh. We didn't like him to laugh too much there because he would choke. But <laughs> that day... My daughter wanted to do the feeding and I was videoing her feeding up because I kept a blog every day and I actually wrote a book out of that. But she was pouring the formula stuff into his tube through the little funnel thing and Bill got tickled. Well, he starts laughing 
with his big old Buddha belly, because you know their belly gets big when that muscle goes. We call it does, the, yeah. we called it the Buddha belly, and that formula just kind of explodes back out of the <laughs> tube. It's just like a it's like a fountain of formula. Well, I'm laughing. Bill's laughing. It's making it worse. My daughter's mortified. The people around us are mortified. Yeah. But the more people stared, the more we laughed because it was just, we were like, this is comical. I mean, I'm sorry. But uh, so that's how we handled those type things. Did your husband ever have to have a feeding tube or was he able to eat all the way through? Uh, he made the choice not to have a feeding tube, okay. you know, no internal vents and, and no feeding tube. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when he wanted real food and that was important to him. And when I was in Georgia later, um, I said that, you know, cause part of explaining why this went so quickly, um, is saying that, and they were having, it's called the Supra, um, which is a, a dinner where the men toast constantly. So you, you stand up and you give a toast and you drink your drink and then the next person stands up and gives their toast and drinks a drink and there's lots and lots and lots of food, but mostly it's about the toasting. Mm -hmm. um, so so I, I told his friends that and they all went, oh, yes, yes, that makes sense. You know, why would he want to live if he couldn't have food and wine? Oh, okay. Yeah, that's, that's so deeply embedded in what it means to be Georgian, to, to eat and to drink. Um, so his last meal was yogurt that I had made. Okay. Uh, Matzoning, it's called in, in Georgian, uh, which is generally the first meal that Georgian children have as well. Okay. So, you know, I was able to tell his, his mom, who actually uh, passed uh, very recently, I was able to tell her that his, his last meal had been you know, the first thing that she had fed him as well. That's pretty cool though. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was pretty awesome. Uh, he was not able to do BiPAP. He agreed to try it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I thought it would, I thought it was worth trying. Uh, and he reacted very, very strongly to it. Felt like he was choking. And I know that there's a fair percentage of people who do, yeah. but I also wonder if um, some of the treatments that he went through, you know, that caused him to be a political refugee may have made that uh, not something he could tolerate. Possibly, you know, without getting in a lab, that's quite possible. Because I know Bill felt very claustrophobic yeah. with the first mask he had. And he wasn't crazy about the machine, but um, it, I'd say those last several months, he pretty much refused to use it. He had, he had just had enough. He had mm -hmm. had enough of it. Um, and that's their choice. So we would never have made him do anything he didn't want to do. And it was his decision. Um, we all supported him and let him know it was his decision. But he had had one infection after the other that started with uh, urinary tract infections and then C. diff and then back to urinary tract. It had been uh, several months of repeated infections. And he was just exhausted. We were exhausted. And the decision was made by him with us supporting him, me and me and my two children, that he didn't have to do any more antibiotics or continue if he was ready just to let it go. And that was the decision he made. So, yeah, um, I, I caught some flack for that from some, but, you know, it is what it is. You're not the one living it. So don't judge. 
Yeah, you either believe in bodily autonomy or you don't. Right. And when you do, you know, when all of this comes up, you have to find out, do I really believe in this? Right. You know, do I really believe that people have the right to make their own decisions? And if someone is, you know, cognizant and, and you know, all altogether right. there, then I believe that they have the right to make their own medical decisions. Right. I do, too. And, you know, sometimes I've, I've questioned, hey, you know, did I pressure him in some way that I don't realize? And, you know, but I ultimately just had to accept the fact that it was ultimately his decision. He decided not to have any more medication. I know a couple of the nurses were like, do you know what it's going to be like for him to die from sepsis? I said, I know what sepsis is. I nearly died from it myself, but no, I don't know. And I don't want to know. And this is what's been decided. And it did wind up being a very traumatic death. Um, it was hard with convulsing and seizures. It really was difficult. And a dose of fentanyl is the only thing that calmed him. And eventually, I believe, is probably what eased him on out. But he yeah. was dying anyway. He was super, super sick. Um, so we a lot were... of people, they'll say they had a peaceful passing. We didn't get that. <laughs> so if yeah. you had a peaceful one, I'm glad you did. <laughs> yeah, we, we did. Very much so. You know, we had... Uh, we were on uh, the palliative care group, yeah. which means that the doctors and nurses came to our home and cared for him in our home. And, um, and it was, it was very peaceful. The night before his last night, he had trouble sleeping and he was constantly up and he couldn't get to sleep and he couldn't breathe and mm -hmm. he needed to be shifted this way, you know, up and down and go to the washroom and all of these things over and over again. I didn't get more than an hour of sleep together that, I mean, total, but also together that night. And that morning, uh, I, I said, honey, we, we did not have PSWs at that point. Mm -hmm. I had done, you know, it went really fast and it was COVID and it was hard to get all of these people. Right. Um, but I had, I was still able to do everything. And then that, that morning I said, I have to have some help. Right. You know, I cannot continue uh, to do this without physical support and people here at night. And then I, and then I said, I'll call on Monday. That was Sunday morning and he died Sunday night. Wow. Yeah. So, so part of me is like, well, <laughs> he decided that's enough. You know, I don't want any more people in my house. But you know, that yeah. agitation he was having is perfectly normal when you're yeah. getting close to death. That uh, terminal agitation, I think is what they call it. Um, yes. It's actually really normal. So it was that dying process had started and you just didn't realize yeah. it. That's what that, that's yeah. probably exactly I didn't, what was happening. I didn't know. I, I did find that out afterwards, but yes. Yeah. 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 I, I don't, I think if Bill had terminal agitation, it was while he was unconscious when he was so sick and that may be yeah. where the convulsions or seizing or whatever that horribleness was, was coming from. I have no idea. I just know it was awful. Um. So how long were you guys married? I forgot to ask that. Yeah, we got married in 2005. We met in 2003. So I immigrated to Canada on Canada Day, which is July 1st of 2003. Oh. And uh, I had bought a condo in uh, the St. Lawrence Market neighborhood, which is this giant uh, farmer's market in uh, downtown Toronto. And I went into that market and 
uh, went to the cheese shop and saw this gorgeous guy. <laughs> and I, I kept going back and I'd buy little tiny pieces of cheese. So I'd have an excuse to go like three times a week. And after I did that for a couple of months, one of his coworkers said, do you like him? You know, like it was seventh grade. And I said, oh, have I been subtle? <laughs> I didn't think I had. <laughs> yeah. So, so he, so he finally asked me out. We went on our first date, uh, September tenth of two thousand and three. Okay. And uh, you know, later I discovered that there, he didn't take my flirting seriously because women used him for practice all the time. He was a <laughs> handsome man behind the counter, and women would come up and toss their hair and say hi, you know, and shake and shake their shoulders and you know do all of these things. So, so he, he was, was completely early used to, early thirties at that point, right? Yeah, he was thirty then. Okay. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, uh, so we married, uh, Christmas Eve of 2005 and I went, well, he'll never forget our anniversary. Uh, but of course that's not Orthodox Christmas Eve. It's Western Christmas Eve. Right. Right. So he was always like, oh, is today our anniversary? I had no idea. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow. So, okay. Uh, what do I want to ask? I, so you had a fairly long marriage then. So what I want to move into now for your episode two in a moment is to talk about what it's been life like since he passed away. So we'll say goodbye for now. And we'll welcome you back for your next okay. episode in two weeks. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you.